This is Nuclear Explained. The ocean is an immense force of nature. It plays a key role in the Earth's climate and in the global carbon cycle. The ocean provides a large fraction of the oxygen we breathe. It also absorbs greenhouse gases and thus mitigates the effects of climate change. The livelihoods of more than 3 billion people depend on oceanic resources. While we depend on the ocean for food, oxygen and more, it is under threat. Human activities have fundamentally altered the ocean's chemical composition. I'm Joanne Liu. And I'm Ayhan Evrensel. The full impact of climate change on the ocean is unclear. But since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, the ocean has become more acidic because of carbon emissions. This drop in pH and increase in acidity is known as ocean acidification. In this episode of Nuclear Explained, we will learn how the ocean is changing and how and why scientists are using nuclear techniques to understand these changes. Changes that could already be altering the taste of seafood. Let's begin with an expert based in Sweden. My name is Sam Dupont and I'm a professor in marine ecophysiology at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. How is the ocean affected by global changes? The ocean is providing us a lot of services. So the air we breathe, the food we eat, and, and many, many others. We know that the climate is warming all around the planet. So the ocean is in many ways mitigating climate change, which is really useful. Without the ocean, climate change would be much worse than it is today, meaning warmer climate, uh, more extreme events, but it has to pay the price. The ocean is getting warmer. Uh, you also have other impact like less oxygen in the ocean, uh, the waves are also changing. One of these consequences of this increased concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is, is ocean acidification. How does ocean acidification occur and what is it exactly? Because we are releasing so much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, uh, uh, much more carbon dioxide is also entering the ocean. It's mitigating climate change, but it's it's also reacting with water. So if you have CO2, carbon dioxide, it reacts with seawater and form carbonic acid. So basically, because of that, the ocean is getting through time a little bit more acidic every day. And that has also other cascading consequences for the chemistry of the ocean. But overall, this is what ocean acidification is. It's a change in the chemistry of the ocean because of the carbon dioxide that we are putting into the atmosphere. And it's not just something that scientists are predicting for the future. It's something that we can observe everywhere. What kind of impact does this increase in acidity have on the ocean, on the marine life and on our human society? So the measure of acidity, the pH of the water, it's something that is natural. So every liquid has, has a pH, like it has a temperature. So organisms that are out there in the ocean ecosystem are experiencing a range of acidity. And organisms are exposed to new conditions in, in ocean chemistry that never experienced before, and that creates a lot of stress. That, of course, it's never a good thing. Like if you yourself is exposed to increased temperature, you're going to be stressed at some point. But that doesn't mean that similar thing would happen today. So that's why we have to use another way of studying ocean acidification, which is doing experiment in the laboratory or going in the field and make observation. And today the field really exploded. After two decades of studies, we have more than 10,000 publications. 
And overall, all these different information lead to the same conclusion. Acidification will decrease biodiversity, decrease ecosystem functioning, meaning that all the services that the ocean are providing for us will be negatively impacted. When you want to study something like that, you, have, you can use different approaches. You can try to go in the past first and see, did something like that happen in the history of the planet? And the answer is yes. At the end of the Permian, actually, you had an increase in volcanic activity and a lot of uh, greenhouse gases, including CO2, that were released into the atmosphere. Uh, it was one of the largest extinction we ever experienced. I imagine in your line of work, you're also using a variety of techniques to study, to monitor the effects of ocean acidification. So it's not only about documenting the disaster, it's about finding solutions. We need to be able to go to places in Africa, in Asia, everywhere in the world and locally propose solutions and say, OK, we need to manage the marine ecosystem in a very efficient way. And to do that, you need to have a deep understanding of what ocean acidification is doing in on marine species and ecosystem. And that's where nuclear techniques can play a really key role. So not only nuclear application already had uh, a really important uh, application in understanding the process, there are also some nuclear applications that will allow us to answer future really key questions if we want to define solutions and the best action that we can do to address the problem. Can you tell us what are these nuclear applications? What kind of nuclear tools are you using? People have been using a ratio of different isotopes to reconstruct the past climate and reconstruct the pH conditions that were over the last 20 million years and also what these pH, all these pH conditions translated into biological response. You could use any kind of radio tracer that are really powerful tools to study the combined impact of acidification with other toxicants. And what is a radio tracer? It's a chemical compound in which you modify, you replace one or more atoms with a radioisotope. An isotope would be uh, something with an excess of nuclear energy that you can trace and quantify. So your radio tracer will allow you to follow a specific molecule or even sometimes other kind of particles and, and, uh, and follow their fates in an organism or in an ecosystem. The ocean absorbs about one-fourth of all carbon dioxide we produce, which is increasing the acidity of the ocean. The power of the atom is telling from reconstructing historical environmental conditions to helping scientists forecast future effects of acidified ocean conditions. In this next segment, we will go into more depth about nuclear's role in studying ocean acidification and its impact. My name is Sarah Flickinger, and I'm an associate research scientist with the IAEA Ocean Acidification International Coordination Center. I'm based at the Marine Environmental Labs in Monaco. Can you give us some examples of how nuclear techniques are used to study the effects of ocean acidification on marine ecosystems? Nuclear and isotopic techniques are actually a really powerful tool for looking at ocean acidification. So in terms of past ocean pH, scientists can use a tool of boron isotopes. And essentially these isotopes are present in the ocean and the ratio between these boron isotopes changes in response to the pH chemistry of the seawater. So scientists are able to take cores, sediment cores, 
of calcifying marine organisms such as corals um, or other organisms that have carbonate skeletons. And they can look at the ratio of the boron isotope in these sediment cores that can go back hundreds of thousands of years and use that as a proxy for the seawater pH. And this allows them to study with very good precision um, the ancient pH of the seawater and look at how past acidification events in the ocean caused things like mass extinctions or really big changes in the ocean ecosystem. Uh, this data is really important as we look forward to uh, the current conditions of a changing ocean and help scientists make predictions about what might happen in future acidified ocean conditions. In terms of organisms today, uh, we can use radio tracers such as calcium 45. Um, this is a radio tracer that doesn't occur naturally in the environment, um, and we can use it to look at the calcification rates of organisms, again, including shellfish, corals, things that are really important in our ocean today, um, and we can measure how this calcification rate changes using this radio tracer tool in response to things like ocean acidification. Are there other radioisotopes that scientists use to measure the levels of ocean acidification at the moment? So there are other isotopes that um, or radio tracers that scientists can use to look at the physiology of organisms. So we can use things like zinc 65. Uh, zinc is an essential micronutrient for marine organisms, and um, they will uptake these essential micronutrients at different rates uh, in response to stressors such as ocean acidification. Um, we can also look at the uptake of toxic contaminants that can come from industrial sources, uh, such as cadmium 109, and see how organisms accumulate these contaminants, again, in responses to ocean stressors like ocean acidification, but also lack of oxygen or warming, since all of these stressors occur together. And these radio tracer techniques allow us to look at how all of these stressors interact uh, to affect the marine organisms and ecosystems that they exist in. What is the benefit of using radio tracers in comparison to other measurement techniques? Radio tracers are really unique because um, they allow us to look at both the past conditions of the pH of the ocean, and but also the current and future impacts on these ecosystems. Scientists can say with extreme precision exactly how much of these radio tracers are being used by the organisms, whether it's through calcification or ingestion or accumulation. Um, so these are very complementary to conventional techniques, um, but they are more precise and they can add a lot more information that is really unique um, just because of the nuclear technique. Are there any challenges in using such nuclear techniques? The biggest challenge is because it's such a highly specialized technique is that there are very few labs worldwide that are equipped to use these techniques. So here in Monaco at the Marine Environmental Lab Laboratories, um, we have a really well-equipped lab for using these radio tracers. One of the unique things about the Ocean Acidification International Coordination Center is that we have a capacity building program where we're able to share um, the knowledge and use of these radio tracer techniques for use in ocean acidification research worldwide. The countries that will suffer the most from the effects of ocean acidification are often the least equipped to perform research on ocean acidification. And ocean acidification is a problem that while it affects the entire globe, it actually varies on a very local and regional scale. Um, and this is one of the strengths of the OAICC capacity building program because we do in fact target 
participants from these developing countries to look at the effects of ocean acidification and the chemistry of the ocean acidification locally, and we're able to help build this capacity in those regions. Sarah, can you tell us about the IAEA Ocean Acidification International Coordination Center? So the OAICC has three main pillars that we use to address ocean acidification. The first is science. Um, this is all of the experiments that are performed here at the Marine Environmental Laboratories using radio tracers and isotopic techniques. The second pillar is communication. Um, the OAICC maintains a daily news stream post um, with all of the scientific literature on ocean acidification, as well as media coverage, podcasts, videos, um, anything related to ocean acidification. This is available online for all scientists and member states. And finally, the last pillar that the OAICC has is capacity building. And this is a four-stage capacity building program. So we are able to take participants through from a very basic level, and they learn about the chemistry and the biology um, around this issue, um, through to trainings on more advanced scientific techniques, including on radio tracers. Um, and the last level is actually fully-fledged research projects hand-in-hand -hand with IAEA scientists. So the capacity building program really takes people from no level of understanding on ocean acidification through to actually contributing to the scientific community and the scientific body of knowledge on this global issue. The OAICC has hosted ocean acidification training activities for over 600 participants from 98 countries since it was founded in 2012. We will hear from one of those participants based in Costa Rica. My name is Celeste Sanchez Noguera. I'm from the University of Costa Rica. I'm a marine biologist working as researcher and also as lecturer here in Costa Rica. Celeste, you're a marine biologist. What brought you to the topic of ocean acidification? Because my background was in coral reef ecology, I realized that ocean acidification could actually have a very strong impact on corals. So that was like the first approach I actually have uh, with ocean acidification. And in the meantime, I realized that uh, ocean acidification could also impact other ecosystems that are also present here in Costa Rica, and that could actually have also an impact on uh, economic activities such as aquaculture or even uh, fishing. And I thought that was something very important also for, for our country. What does ocean acidification really do in Costa Rica? What are the areas affected in particular? The truth is, we don't know yet. In order to actually know if there is a change going on, uh, for example, if there is actually uh, an ocean acidification process uh, taking place in our coast, first we need to know how is like the current conditions in our in our seas like specifically in terms of costa rica what we do know uh, is that for example in costa rica in the north pacific coast there is a natural process where uh, waters from the deep are usually up well during few months uh, in the year and these waters are coming with a uh, natural low pH. Uh, so that's a natural process that is taking place in our country. But when it comes to like ocean acidification uh, more induced by anthropogenic activities, we are just like on the stage where we first have to start to uh, set baseline information in order to actually know uh, what is going to happen. And what kind of scientific information do you need to establish this baseline? 
first of all, we need to start to do a lot of measurements, right? We need to start to measure uh, in different points along the coast, in both coasts, because actually Costa Rica has like Caribbean and Pacific coast. And that's something that we are in the process of doing. We have been able to start with this process thanks to all the training that uh, we have received and also to all the, for example, equipment and devices that we have received through different uh, capacity building uh, programs. I was the first one getting the training and now I'm trying to uh, pass on all this information to uh, advanced students, for example, because at some point they will be the ones actually helping us to carry all the measurements. Institutes from Costa Rica are involved in IAEA projects on ocean acidification, along with dozens of other institutes from across the world. Can you tell us more about any of the projects you're working on together with the IAEA? One of the coordinated research projects from, from the IAEA that is actually aiming to study what is the impact of ocean acidification on seafood. Last year, for example, uh, we did an experiment. We were actually uh, using snapperfish, which is one of the commercial species here in Costa Rica. We just um, cultured this species under control conditions in the lab uh, in three different levels of pH. So we were able to follow uh, the development, the growth of this species for a period of eight months in different levels of pH. And, and results? We were, well, we are now in the phase of actually collecting the results. And we also, for example, collect samples of tissue of the fish. And that's what we are measuring at the moment. One of the things that we are also trying to determine if is if there is uh, a difference, for example, in the content of protein, of fats, of uh, things that could actually be very important for the uh, nutritional content of the fish. And that's something that we are just uh, analyzing here at the university at the moment. As a final word on what ocean acidification does to our coast, to our ocean, what would you leave the listeners with, Celeste? It's not just like a matter of studying the topic and knowing what is going on, but also taking actions uh, to to make a change. And uh, at the same time, we as scientists have a very huge responsibility to convey this message to the people in order for them to take actions. We are just not doing science because it's fun. We are out actually doing science because we think there is a huge value in uh, producing good information and also finding the way to communicate this information in a way that people could actually uh, take actions and modify uh, what we are doing right now at the moment. Prior to the Industrial Revolution of the 18th to 19th centuries, the ocean's average pH was about 8.2. Today, the ocean's average pH is 8.1. This means that the ocean today is about 30% more acidic than in pre-industrial times. And by 2100, the average pH of the ocean could decrease to about 7.7, making the ocean two times more acidic and affecting half of all marine life. Scientists across the world continue to study the impact of climate change on the ocean. The IAEA supports them in utilizing nuclear and nuclear-derived techniques to develop a science-based understanding of changes in the ocean. If you've been listening to Nuclear Explained, you've been hearing about the various applications of nuclear science and technology, from cancer care and food safety 
to water management and now the ocean. Here is an interesting fact. You can actually taste ocean acidification. In one of Sam's studies, he raised shrimp in tanks to simulate the more acidic ocean expected in the future. You can taste the difference between the shrimp of today and the shrimp of the future. And actually, people prefer the taste of today. And we repeated that later with mussel and got the same results. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. We would love to hear your questions and feedback or even interesting facts. Send us an email or a voice recording to nuclearexplained at iaea.org. If you missed our previous episodes, find them on your favorite streaming platform or on iaea.org. And be sure to subscribe. And if you want to learn more about nuclear science and technology for peace and development, check out our nuclear explainers at iaea.org and follow us on social media. I'm Ayhan Evrensel. And I'm Joanne Liu. Thanks for listening to Nuclear Explained, brought to you by the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency. You have been listening to Nuclear Explained.